Hills, and uh, we do welcome many of our guests who are with us. And just to say a word, it is a um, it's a good day to be a guest with North Hills for many reasons. Uh, today is one of those kind of pure North Hills fashions day that everything just is kind of going wrong, and it's okay. We uh, don't have a projector this morning. We're on Plan C for our communion bread. There. Uh, kids crying in bushes and hiding around corners and it's just but it's a good day i walked to the fellowship hall and it smells delicious so we're going to have us a good lunch afterwards and everyone's invited um but as we'll see this morning in daniel um most of the things that we think we need uh to worship the lord we really don't need and so we are we are here to be in god's word we're here to be gathered as god's people and worship the lord in truth and spirit and so uh and just to echo what ryan said earlier we like to joke about our kids, but we love our kids, and we love the wide range and ages of kids that we have in our service, and, uh, and they do not bother anyone except who? Except the parents, and so you remember that, especially if you're new with us, uh, your kids uh, are, are completely welcome in here, whatever age they are. So with that in mind, uh, let us turn to the book of Daniel this morning. We'll be in Daniel chapter 3 here in just a moment, and we get to start a new chapter in Daniel uh, if we're in Daniel 3, guess where we were last week? We're in Daniel chapter 2, and James finished up for us uh, verses 46 uh, through 49 of Daniel chapter 2 last week, where we, um, uh, not to recap all the stuff that we've gone through in Daniel, hopefully you've been with us or been listening online, uh, but it's just been this, uh, this great narrative, and Daniel has been walking through um, kind of what's happening, getting set up, and uh, especially these first few, first couple chapters specifically dealing with the, the dream and the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, and that Daniel was able to uh, interpret uh, through the power of the Lord. And then last week, kind of finishing chapter 2, we see this excited king. It says there he fell upon his face, and they paid homage to Daniel there in verse 46. And so it looks like, leaving chapter 2 last week, it looks like King Nebuchadnezzar is excited. He's looking to and trusting the Lord, but we'll see uh, what turns out this morning. And so let us read, go ahead and read verses 1 through 7. This is our text this morning of Daniel chapter 3. So here we go. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar set, sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music you were to fall down and worship the golden image that king nebuchadnezzar has set up and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace therefore as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn pipe lyre trigon heart bagpipe and every kind of music all the peoples nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that king nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for an opportunity to gather again as your people. 
Lord, thank you for what we've already, already been able to do, Lord, to, to be here together, Lord, to worship through song, to, to pray with one another, Lord, to look to you and to trust you. And so now as we turn to your word, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, your people, by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this text that's before us. In the name of Christ, we do pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we look at this kind of introduction, if you will, to chapter 3, chapter 3 is the, one of the, uh, the famous chapters of the Bible that you're probably familiar with as a child growing up in, in church in some capacity, uh, Sunday school or vacation Bible school, uh, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And so we won't get to those guys this week. Uh, we'll get to them starting next week. So this is kind of the introduction, the setup to the, the context of the fiery furnace as to why it was such a big deal, uh, the choice they were going to make next week in the light of the king's edict. Uh, this morning, we're going to set up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you will. Uh, don't have any clever points for you this morning. We're just going to kind of unpack and walk through this text and look at the, the when, the what, the where, the who, and the why of what's going on. I think it will be helpful and beneficial to us this morning. So let's look there. Going back to verse 1, there's so much happening in just this first verse of Daniel 3. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth, breadth was 6 cubits, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, we have to first look at the when of this text. If we go from, from last week, there's this major shift. As, as we said earlier, in Daniel chapter 2, the, the king, he is on his face. He's paying homage, and, and, uh, and James kind of walked through that last week of, you know, who was he worshiping? Was he really looking to the Lord? And Nebuchadnezzar is a hard guy to figure out. We've kind of encountered him already in Daniel. We're not done in Daniel chapter 3. We're going to uh, see Nebuchadnezzar again in Daniel chapter 4. And that's going to be kind of the end of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel. But he shows up many times in the Old Testament. And he's uh, kind of a hard guy to figure out. But especially if you just look kind of this section, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, you see this big contrast that we're going to come back to at the end of our time this morning. But there is also likely a pretty significant time gap between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Some even say it could be between 18 and 20 years from the end of, of chapter 2 when he had this vision and the Lord interpreted it through Daniel. And then what happens in chapter 3 with Nebuchadnezzar? Now, we're not for sure of how long it was, but we know it could have been a pretty lengthy gap based on some external uh, evidences uh, to Scripture. But it's really not that important this morning of when it took place. But let's look at what happened. Uh, what, what is going on? What, does ne what is Nebuchadnezzar doing? It says that he made an image of gold. Now, right out of the shoot, let's just address that. Most people think, as we kind of think back to Scripture, we think back to these stories, uh, we think Nebuchadnezzar made this big image of himself. Now, it's likely could be that, but it doesn't say that it was an image of himself. It doesn't say what the image was of. It just said that it was a big image of gold. When I say big, it was huge. It was 90, it was, it says specifically here, 60 cubits tall by 6 cubits wide. Now, a cubit is roughly 18 inches to 20 inches, depending on what part of uh, uh, the world you're in and what time you were in, but roughly, we'll call it 18 inches. So to give you some comparison here, I haven't run a tape measure on it, but this looks like about 9 foot wide. Don't put a tape on it, and when the church service is over, say, John, it's 9 and a half foot wide, okay? Roughly, this is about 9 foot 
And 60 feet, uh, 90 feet tall is approximately nine stories. Now, we don't know what nine stories looks like in Monroe Harley because we don't have any buildings hardly over three uh, stories or so. But if my math is correct, I think the Francis Tower building downtown Monroe is about 90 or so foot, 100 or so foot tall. So imagine, if you will, then a structure made of gold about as wide as this, uh, this modesty rail down here and as tall as the Francis Tower in Monroe. That's uh, a very awkward sized image. And this is the image that's before us. This is the image that Nebuchadnezzar has built. And he, and he didn't just uh, make any old image. He made an image of gold. Now, likely it was not solid gold. Not that it matters a whole lot. Uh, what was kind of custom in those days, they would make these things out of wood. And they would overlay it in gold. And so it's probably what we have here is this just huge uh, image, this huge structure that is, that is made and looks like this big old thing of gold. And so that's what he has done. He's made this huge image. And, um, and it, again, it, may, it could have been him. Very well could have been him. As we look at the second part of our, of our text this morning, we're going to see as he calls people, as he commands people to worship, it's clearly about him. So it very well could have been him. But some would say it could have been one of the false gods that they worshiped during this time. But either way, it was this huge uh, statue, if you will. We'll call it a statue. We'll call it a... Um, We'll call it an image. Some would say it may have been 90 foot with like a pedestal for the first little while and then an image of Nebuchadnezzar. Because if you go 90 foot by 9 foot, it's just going to be an odd shape for an individual. But whatever it was, he was commanding people. He built this thing. He went through elaborate lengths to build this thing, especially during this time period of human history, to build something like this and to overlay it in gold. Obviously, there was huge emphasis to be put on this image of gold. And we're going to see why that is this morning. But it was, uh, it was, it was going through great lengths. King Nebuchadnezzar spent to, to build this image uh, that would have been towering over the landscape, if you will. So that's kind of what it was, that's when it took place. Uh, but what's significant about this image, that it was gold from head to toe. It was a solid image of gold. Now, this should take you back to Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. We had this vision, and if you remember, like about two weeks ago, we walked through that vision and Daniel's interpretation of the vision through the, through the Lord, and it was a vision of this huge statue, this huge uh, human-like statue, and just the head was gold, and Daniel said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, represent the head. This golden head is you, and we talked about that and looked through uh, what that meant. And we looked at Scripture to see what it meant, and it clearly pointed to the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, so that golden head was his kingdom. And those metals underneath him, those, uh, those elements underneath him, represented other kingdoms uh, that would come after him that would ultimately destroy his kingdom. And, and we walked through that, and there's all kind of things you could look at and look at the different kingdoms and see God's mighty hand in prophesying the destruction uh, of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon. That's what his vision was. But now, so he's taken this vision where he was the head of gold, and the whole structure is made from head to toe of gold, from top to bottom of gold. If Nebuchadnezzar wanted uh, to capture 
because some would say this was just to, to kind of cap- to visualize the vision, if you will, that God had given him. But we see that it's not to capture that because if he was trying to visualize his dream, it would have been of gold and iron and um, let's see what are the, the different metals, the golden head, the chest and arms of silver, the stomach and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron and the feet of a mixture of iron and clay. But that's not what he made. He made one solid structure of gold. And so as we can, can imagine then, as, as we think through that, and why would he have, uh, why would he have made this whole thing of gold? Uh, it was to, to, to symbolize that he did not want his kingdom to end. That this gold that represented him and Babylon and his kingship and his domain, he didn't want it to end. He didn't want it to be destroyed <clears throat> by a kingdom of iron or a kingdom of clay or kingdom of bronze or silver. He wanted his kingdom to be eternal. And Daniel pointed him and said, there is a kingdom that will be eternal. There is a kingdom that will never be destroyed, but it's not yours, Nebuchadnezzar. And so here, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is making a very bold statement, going through great lengths and great costs to build this statue, this image that ultimately pointed to his kingdom that would not end. And as we've said a little bit, um, Nebuchadnezzar was, was very, uh, we'll just say he was a psychopathic, egomaniacal tyrant of a king. And we'll see this. We've seen it already in chapter 1 and chapter two. 2. We're going to see it in chapter 3. We're going to see it in chapter 4. He was about his kingdom. And it would not be usurped by others. And so we believe this image of gold, this statue, uh, represented his renewed belief that his kingdom would be eternal, that he as king would not be dethroned, that his kingdom would not be destroyed. And we're going to see more of that in chapter 4 very specifically. So Nebuchadnezzar, he commissions this uh, colossal statue to be built uh, and then to be overlaid with gold and to be set in the, uh, in the plain of Dura. And so let's see where this happened, because not only uh, do we see when it happened and what was done, we also see where this took place. It specifically tells us, specifically tells us in verse 1 that he set this image, he set this statue, he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, this uh, Dura could be a word that has a lot of different meanings, that has some common meanings, but the word that is actually of interest, of great interest, is the word plain. When it says he set it up in the plain of Dura. Now, to us, it doesn't mean a whole lot. As English readers today, we just kind of read that and we think, oh, uh, here's a plain, and specifically it was, it was in Dura. But the original readers would have seen this word that was likely written in Aramaic, and they would have connected it to a Hebrew word that was the exact same for plain that is found in the book of Genesis. Now, go with me to the book of Genesis to see what this connection is genesis chapter 11 for a uh, just one verse of uh, kind of identifying where we are in genesis chapter 11 first two verses there now the whole earth had one language and the same words and we're going to see that be important this morning and as the people migrated from the east they found a plain in the land of shinar and settled there and so it is a, a widely held belief, especially as you look at this language and the word they used to describe where they put it 
was that he placed this image, he placed this statue in the same place, in the same plane, if you will, that Babel had been constructed so many years earlier. And so we have the story of Babel, the Tower of Babel, now has this very close connection to this golden image in the book of Daniel. And so what is going on here? Because it's honestly, it's really a very similar story. Now, another different stories, you remember the story of Babel, it's also another great story from our childhood and where the, the, the men of, of humanity come together, all mankind come together to build this tower up to the heavens. Because ultimately, they are fueled by their pride. They believe that they can build something to ascend to heaven. And we see what the Lord did. He did something drastic. He not only kept them from completing their task and completing this entire Bible, he gave different languages and he scattered them throughout all the earth as they were gathering in one mega population, if you will, back in Genesis. And so the story of Babel is about pride and the pursuit of mankind. Together, they thought they could do anything without, uh, with, with no need for God, that they could even reach the heavens. And so here in this setting, we have this golden statue that is in the same place. And so it's sitting in the same place, and it's connected very deeply to its past. And so here's this, this statue that we have before us. And the king was saying that it would ultimately unite his kingdom and they too could accomplish whatever they set out to do. This was Nebuchadnezzar setting this monument to, to unite people together, not for the glory of God or the good of humanity, but for his own kingly glory, for his own purposes. He was trying to unite uh, his kingdom again as he continued to grow his kingdom through conquering all of these surrounding nations. And so again, we see that the pride and the pursuit of man, it didn't end with Babel. It continues here in Daniel chapter 3, and it continues today. In 2022, and as long as sin abounds, pride will abound. Greed will abound. The pursuit of earthly kingdoms will abound. And so we see this, um, we see this reminder, if you will, in Daniel chapter 3. This pride and pursuit of, of man's ambitions is still very present today. Mankind believing that together we can accomplish unlimited feats and yet have no need of the Lord. Have no need of the Lord. And yet we know that nothing happens as believers for anyone, believers and unbelievers alike, nothing happens apart from the sovereign hand of God. Nothing. And that is so comforting to us today. That regardless of what man desires to achieve and what kingdom he desires to grow, it is ultimately God who is in control. He is in control of every single person, every single kingdom. As Spurgeon said, every single molecule. There is not a single rogue one because of the sovereignty of God. So mankind may think he can accomplish so much, but he can only accomplish what the Lord allows him to do. And let's turn to Mark chapter 8 as a good reminder that Jesus gives us of, of what does it even really matter of what we accomplish? What does it matter of the feats that we achieve? Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Go with me there real quick. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking to his disciples. It says there in Mark 8, 34, and calling the crowd to him with his, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, <clears throat> 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save him. We're going to see this next week uh, on, on great display with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he says in verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And you can, you can take Nebuchadnezzar, right? And you can take his, his whole life's mission and you can contrast it right there to verse 36. What does it matter, Nebuchadnezzar? If you gain the whole world, what does it matter if you conquer all the surrounding lands? What if it matters if you get all the resources, if you get all the power? What does it matter if you forfeit your own soul in the midst of it? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels and we just clarify that by saying by his kingdom fully coming so when the full kingdom of god comes whenever sin is destroyed and death is destroyed what will it matter what earthly accomplishments that we have achieved it will not and so we see where he puts this is important. It reminds us of, of this ongoing futility of man, if you will. But then let's look at who was invited quickly. This invitation list, and it spends a good bit of, um, uh, of text here, if you will. It gives us a long list, and then it repeats it. You see there in verse 2, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, he sent to gather, so he sent out. Now, he didn't, it's important to note, <clears throat> he didn't invite this, this group. He didn't say, hey guys, would you join me for the unveiling of my uh, golden statue? He sent out a decree, if you will. He said, go get these people. He sent, <clears throat> he sent out his, uh, his people to gather these men, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he sent out for all of the who's who, every person of power, every person of influence, every person who had any kind of authority in their province, in their, in their area, he sent for them to come to come and not just be present as we're going to say not just to be there not just to witness it not just to say ooh and ah and take pictures and take selfies of this great statue but for a very specific purpose that we'll see here in just a moment <clears throat> and we see this list repeated it's not only did he send for them but in, the writer wants us to know that they came so it says there in verse 3, Then all of these people, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So it says the same thing very differently. The writer wants us to know the original audience needed to hear that he sent for all these people and they all came. They all came at the king's request and his command. They showed up to be a part of what was going on, as we'll see their active involvement and in what he's about to command them to do. So this is the who uh, of our story. And then let's see the why. Why did he go through all of this great l l trouble? Because, I mean, for us, it's just seven short verses here, but there's just so much time it's taken to build this monument to all the expense, all the manpower, and then to go get all of these leaders to, to come to this one spot. Why is he doing all of this? What is Nebuchadnezzar's end game? It says, and they stood there before the image in verse 3. And Nebuchadnezzar had set up 
And then verse 4, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, <clears throat> and every kind of music, <clears throat> you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Thank you very much, James. So the why, the purpose behind Nebuchadnezzar is for everyone to gather, not just to witness it, not just to behold it, but to worship. He is calling them to worship collectively, not with, not with a choice, but with a requirement. He said, well, how, how is he going to force me to worship? Because I, t- I said a while ago, he's psychopathic. And he said, John, that's just not fair. You don't know Nebuchadnezzar. You don't know what he's gone through. You don't know his life. You don't know all these things. Well, look at what he says here. So you're to fall down to worship these. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately, immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, <clears throat> that has been lost on us a little bit over the years because we think about the fiery furnace, and we think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we think about this great story, and we think about all these wonderful things to remember. But it's a fiery furnace. We're going to see in the next couple of weeks of how hot that furnace is. And, and my guess is that it's not pleasant. It wasn't meant for a children's story. He says, if you don't do this, all these, and not just, these aren't just the people of the kingdom, these are the rulers of the entire land. He says, if you don't worship, if you don't bow down in the presence of this thing I just built, I just made this. I just had my carpenters come together. I built this huge tower. Then my metalsmiths came and they laid it in gold. Now you're going to bow down and worship it like it's a god. Now, whether it's the image of him or the image of a false god, but that was his command. He commanded the people to bow down and worship, and the consequence was immediate death, to be thrown into a fiery, burning furnace. So yes, he was a little off. He was psychopathic. He was egotistical. He was a sinner. He was a sinner. He is not someone who has turned to and trusted the Lord yet. In case you're not for sure, it is not with someone who looks to the Lord in faith. That is not how they operate. That is not how they lead. So he is someone who is a sinner in need of redemption. And we look at someone like Nebuchadnezzar and say, man, he's just crazy. How, how could he do this? But apart from Christ, we're all like that. We're all equally sinful. It's just We get to see his sin on display here. We get to see his heart kind of in an external sense. He makes no bones about his pride. He makes, he, he's not hiding at all who he is. We just do a better job in today's culture of hiding who we are, right? But that's what sin looks like when you're full of pride and you're consumed with your own glory and the world is all about you and your plans. And so why did all this stuff take place? It was for worship. Not to worship the one true God, not to worship and to seek the glory of God, but to worship Nebuchadnezzar, to worship this earthly king who is so fearful of losing his kingdom and losing his power and losing his glory. They came to worship him. He knew that he would have greater control if they were worshiping the same false God. So Nebuchadnezzar here, he is attempting to define how and who to worship. 
He is attempting here to define how and who to worship. He doesn't just say, worship this. He says, this is how you do it. When you hear this musical instruments, when you hear this symphony, of all these instruments playing together, then you will bow down, you'll put your face to the ground, and you will worship. So he is attempting to define how and who is worship. And in doing so, he's also trying to circumvent what God did at Babel. And I think this is so interesting. So what God did at Babel, he didn't gather the people like we see he does in Acts with the Holy Spirit. But in, as people are, are sinful and they're gathering, what God does in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 11 is he disperses them and he brings confusion. He brings uh, languages to them and he separates them. And so what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do here is the exact opposite. He's trying to gather the kingdom of men back together and bring unity that we see here specifically through who and how they are worshiping. And he's not doing this for the glory of God. He is doing this solely for the glory of one person, for the glory of King Nebuchadnezzar. Read a a quote here from uh, one of the, the guys that I read. He says this, The worship on the plain of Dura was not inspired by the Spirit, nor was it in accordance with the truth. Instead, it changed the glory of the incorruptible incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and exchanged the truth of of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. And he's quoting Romans 1, of course, there, verse 23 and 25. And so we just see again on display what we do in our hearts often. I believe it was uh, Spurgeon. We quote everything to Spurgeon, right? Who Who knows what he said? But that our human heart is an idol factory. And this is what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's just, he has literally created an idol and said all of you are to worship it. And we create our own idols in our own hearts. And we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And so what does that look like in our own life? What does that look like in the lives of those around us who they're not worshiping the one true God, but they're worshiping these idols that our heart produces at rapid rates? Then the author also goes on to say this about worship. and I think it's worth noting. He says, in worship, the statement, how I like to worship is irrelevant. Ever thought about that? I mean, we're all guilty, right? I've said at some point in my life how I like to worship, what it means for me, what I like to worship, the kind of songs I like, the kind of, the kind of ambient lights I like, the kind of spotlights I like, the amount of smoke I like, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. We can have our own preferences, but it's irrelevant. How we like to worship is irrelevant because it is God who gives us instruction of how we are to worship Him. So in worship, the statement, how I like to worship, is irrelevant. All that matters is how God chooses to be worshipped. And he quotes John 4.23, or cites John 4.23. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And that is how we worship God. is truth and in spirit. And that is why we kind of, to add to our our slight chaos this morning. It doesn't matter if all of our stuff is together. It doesn't matter if the power goes out this morning. It doesn't matter if our communion elements aren't like they always are. It doesn't matter if our projector works or doesn't. It doesn't matter if this microphone stops working. I can be loud, I assure you. None of these details ultimately matter. 
their conveniences and they're comfortable. And they, they help us for, for good purposes. But ultimately, God, He hasn't put these commands on us like that. He said that He is looking for true worshipers who worship in truth and in spirit. The Father is seeking such to worship Him. We see it every Sunday. You can come to a church. You can come to this church. I believe the North Hills is a good, healthy, biblical church. And we strive to honor the Lord and, and submitting to His Word and, and worshiping Him through song and praying as God's people. But you can come to a healthy, biblical church, whether it's this one or another one, and be far from the Lord and still be looking for your own way to worship and not be worshiping God in truth and in spirit. And so what a great reminder for us this morning of how God calls us to worship Him. Not in pomp and fanfare, not in being forced, but true believers will desire to worship the one true God. Now I go a step further. because what Scripture says. We read it in Sunday morning Bible study this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. Not only do we desire to worship the one true God, we desire to worship the one true God with God's people. We desire to gather with God's people and worship as God's people. So we're going to see more of that next week because ultimately we can't be stopped. We can't be stopped from worshiping God. And we're going to see that in a fiery furnace in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego next week. But before leaving this introduction of chapter 3, let's not miss one major point here. And this major point is in Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar seemed to have a change of heart at the end of chapter 2, just if you're kind of casually reading through there. But he clearly has not had that change of heart yet. He has not had a brokenness of his sin yet. The king had an encounter with God that did not lead to his conversion. I think this is so important for us to see. That the king had an encounter with God that did not lead to his conversion. Something we say similar here at North Hills, or I say often, is that he had a proximity to God, but not an intimacy with God. And we see this so often, not just in the Bible, we see it today. We see it today. We see it in 2022. We see it in the lives of our friends and family. There are so many, and we have been that people likely who had a closeness to the, the things of the Lord, who encountered God in some fashion, but yet were far from God in your heart. And we can, we can look the part, especially here in the South. I mean, we have typically, for, for years and years, made a sport of that. We look the part. We look like we have an encounter with the Lord. We look like the Nebuchadnezzar of, of chapter 2 at the end. And fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. But in our heart, we're just building idols of different kinds and laying down and worshiping them. And we're not worshiping the Lord in truth and in spirit. At the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar praised the glory of God with his lips. But in chapter 3, his heart was certainly set on his own glory. And that is ultimately how you can, that's the real litmus test. And only you and your heart know that. Whose glory are you about? Are you about the glory of God? Or are you about the glory of self? You'll answer that question quickly. You're sitting in here likely, I'm about the glory of God. But look at your life. 
Has your, has your heart been changed? Do you have a new heart? Does the Holy Spirit of God dwell inside of you? And how can you know if the Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of you? Because you desire to live for the glory of God. And you fight the desires to live for the glory of self. Nebuchadnezzar is a clear illustration of someone who seems to once have known the Lord, but in truth never did. And if we're just to be frank this morning and very honest, this is, this is a, uh, an answer to a question that the people don't like to, to have. It's, you know, I knew so-and-so growing up, and he was always in church, and he was a deacon in his church, and he had all of his life together, and his family was always there. And then you fast forward 20 years, and now he's nowhere, nowhere near the church. He's nowhere near following the Lord. He's a professed agnostic or atheist. Or, you know, we get so confused. How does this happen? It happens because they have an appearance of walking with the Lord, but the Lord has never saved them. There's no conversion. There's an encounter without a conversion. I want to read a kind of a lengthy quote here from John Owen, a famous Puritan. So kind of bear with me. Some of this is, uh, is older language, but it's a good, it's a good visual. And John Owen says this, uh, this issue. He says, as a traveler in his way meeting with a, as a traveler in his way meeting with a violent storm of thunder and rain, immediately turns out of his way to some house or tree for his shelter. But yet this causes him not to give over his journey. So soon as the storm is over, he returns to his way and progress again. So it is with a man in bondage to sin. They are in a course of pursuing their lusts. The law meets with them and a storm of thunder and lightning from heaven terrifies and hinders them in their way. This turns them for a season out of their course. They will run to prayer or amendment of life for some shelter from the storm of wrath which is feared coming upon their consciences. But is their course stopped? Are their principles altered? Not at all. So soon as the storm is over, so that they begin to wear out that sense and terror that was once upon them, they return to their former course in the service of sin again. And whether this is you this morning, whether it was you and before Christ truly saved you, whether it's someone in your life that you know and you love and you care about, that there are, there are those who for a season may look to the Lord, for a season may, may be around the things of God, for a season have these encounters with the Lord, but have truly never been saved, have truly never looked to Christ as the author and finisher of their salvation, have never repented of their sins and looked to Christ as the only one who could save. And the invitation of the Lord is to all who would look to Him, repent, and be saved. So let us not be like He who only for a season seeks the Lord, but let us be those who truly repent of our sins turn in faith to our only hope of righteousness. And so next week we're going to see what this faith looks like when it's displayed, when your faith and your hope is in the Lord and you will not bow down and worship these false idols. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to turn to your word. We thank you for this reminder of the gospel, this reminder, Lord, of only you save. Only you change hearts. 
And so, Lord, this morning as we walk through this text, I pray that in these next few moments that we may respond to you in faith. I pray that there's one here, Lord, who's never looked to you and trusted you, Lord, in genuine, genuine repentance and faith that you would move in them by your Spirit in this moment. As we come to your communion table this morning, Lord, may we do so in faith, being reminded of what you have done for us. As we sing, Lord, may we sing with hearts that are broken. And we sing with hearts that are full of joy for what you have done. We thank you for this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.